Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the first bunker of 2023 with me, Andrew Harrison. And it's a special start your year edition as we look forward to what's sure to be a fantastic year for Britain again. Fighting his way out from a pile of wrapping paper and pine needles to help me with all that is Alex Andreo. Happy New Year, Alex. How are you? Happy New Year, Andrew. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> No, the the break has sort of made me want more of break. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I'm not, my body is now 60% cheese, so I think we need to do something about that yes. before uh, before it gets worse. Now, before we get into the big events of the year, there's some immediate stuff to deal with, stuff happening this week, specifically the ongoing crisis in public services. The NHS is experiencing overwhelming demands down to flu and COVID. Ambulance staff are being told to conserve oxygen. There is evidence that up to 500 people a day are dying needlessly, Nurses and ambulance staff are striking again this month. Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation, thinks the crisis will continue until April. Alex, can the government keep this entire mess at arm's length and pretend it's all down to NHS management? As it can, I mean, this is the worst NHS crisis that I can recall seeing. I mean, they can't and they haven't. They haven't been able to. Everyone is incredibly angry. Everyone is incredibly scared, actually. It's not nice to live in a country you know, one of the richest countries in the world, and to feel like, you know, if something happens to you, no one will turn up. It's such a basic safety net that, you know, as a Western democracy, we we simply just expect to be there. I mean, these are circumstances under which you might expect a government to declare an emergency or the NHS itself to declare an emergency. Could that happen? What would that entail? Because, as I say, we haven't seen things this bad. I mean, it doesn't matter to an extent what the government do because the the delay, as it were, is at the other end. So the government needed to have done something about social care in the last 12 years when they've been in government. Doing something now might make small differences around the edges, but it will largely be cosmetic. You know, Matthew Taylor, who you mentioned, the chief exec of the NHS Confederation, has said there are 12,000 medically fit patients right now who are still in hospital despite being well enough to leave. That is effectively what is causing the issue. And the problem at that end, at the social care end, especially at a time when government is cutting local authority budgets even more and forcing them into higher council tax, I mean, it that is impossible to sort out quickly. And the, the the piece across the board is that this is effectively a recruitment and retention issue that is long running and cannot be sorted quickly. You know, we have, I think at the last count, something like 120,000 vacancies in the NHS. The vacancy rate is almost at 10%. That is what is unprecedented, and that's what's causing the issue, and that is why the government needs to speak to NHS staff about salaries. Forget whether you think what they're asking for is fair or not fair or has to do with inflation. The issue is that the NHS cannot recruit and retain staff at current salary levels. That's the, I mean, that's the plain truth. So unless something is done about that, then it won't be able to recruit staff. And unless it can recruit staff, then the 
the crisis will never be solved. It will simply emerge every time demand is up, which is in the winter, and submerge every time demand goes a bit lower, having the NHS trying to play catch-up with itself. This is clearly going to be a huge thing in the in the course of the, the whole year, um, and we'll obviously be, be covering it. Also, start in the public realm, starting today, five more days of rail strikes. Do you think that the fact that there's a different backdrop now, the return to work, not the the rhetoric of, no, you know, you're going to ruin Christmas. Will that change the dynamic renegotiation on pay? Or, you know, are we, are we just going to be stuck in this continuing face-off with the government simply refusing to participate? I don't know. That's a very fundamental question about the character of the country. If people didn't care about their holidays being spoiled, will they care about not being able to go to work? I don't think so. My instinct tells me that doesn't move the dial in the government's direction. I mean, again, the the issue is that the government is taking a, a gamble. Because it is doing so poorly, it thinks that a confrontation with the unions will benefit it politically. I mean, that's the bottom line, isn't it? Looking at the at the polling at the tail end of last year, and there's been several polls in the last 10 days, basically, from the 20th or so to the 28th. So the the best two, the polls for the government, these are the best two, show a gap of 17 points. That's Techni on the 23rd of December and Savanta on the 23rd of December, okay? And even those are showing an opening of the gap. The other three polls, Omnisys, Ipsos, and People Polling, show a gap of 26 points in favour of Labour, and that gap has opened during the final two weeks of December by between three and six points. So... Whatever small pathetic bounds Sunak was getting is now reversing rather than improving or or at the very least solidifying. So how long will government persist with its strategy if people are plainly blaming it? I, I don't think long. Let's move on to look at some of those longer term, bigger issues for the, for the year ahead. COVID is surging again in China, but the data is quite opaque. We've had estimates of up to 9,000 deaths a day, but China just will not share the information. You know, we thought COVID was ebbing away. Can we expect it to come back in 2023? Well, it's not a new variant. So that that's encouraging for countries that have a high rate of vaccination like we do because we're not looking at some strange new variant that might be more transmissible or less affected by our vaccines or more dangerous. We're still looking at a combination of Delta and Omicron, effectively. And even though, remember with COVID from our own experience, you you have to look at the curve of new cases rather than the curve of deaths in hospital, because the curve of deaths in hospital has a big lag, as it were, from new cases. And looking at the curve of new cases in China, it has come down significantly since the first week of December when it was at its peak. Now, I fully accept that the data is opaque 
and that it's uh, unreliable and that there's an element of propaganda into it. But I cannot see a reason why the Chinese Communist Party would be misreporting its stats at the beginning of December in a different way to the middle of December. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So even though I think the absolute levels may not be reliable, the trend seems to me to be one where the peak of new infections was reached and is beginning to come down. Now, we know also from our experience that there are secondary waves to come. The EU has actually offered China vaccines to cope with the problem. And that, that I think, is an acknowledgement that we need the Chinese economy to recover for the global economy to recover. You know, China is a hugely important element of global economic recovery. And so I hope more countries join in that effort to supply vaccines to China. And I, ho I hope China accepts them because they haven't yet. It is an important show of solidarity. And, you know, at a time when China's affection with Russia is waning a little bit, it might be an important tool to realign it a little bit more with the West and avoid the more bellicose language that we've had in the last year. China has hugely relaxed its COVID regulations after the protests at home. Lockdowns have been scrapped. Mm. Quarantine rules drop. People can travel abroad again. But this is a blow to Xi Jinping, surely. It's a huge blow. I mean, there's a cynical part of me that thinks China, because of the one-child policy, is facing an aging population much, much more uh, a severe curve than any Western country uh, could imagine. Um, I, I think I saw somewhere that by 2040, it is predicted that they will have four people above the age of 65 to every one person still working. You know, that's a really extreme situation. So there's a cynical part of me that thinks, I'm not sure the, the Communist Party would mind a whole lot if a few million older and vulnerable people died. And I know that's an awful thing to to think, but... Mm -hmm. It won't be a calculation that, that hasn't gone through their head. And so we will see whether the anti-Xi Jinping waves of protest continue, if they intensify, or if they die down as the COVID situation begins to subside. In the US, uh, the new Republican-led House of Representatives is about to be sworn in. It's expected to kill all the Trump inquiries that it can and start investigating Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. However, Democrats have an expanded majority in the Senate. And of course, they've got the presidency. I get the sense that it's going to be kind of Groundhog Day again in, in, in Congress. This is going to feel like the 90s with, you know, shutdowns <laughs> and a whole, an awful lot of just, you know, essentially that gridlock. Yeah, or Obama's second term went a little bit. Yeah, better. yeah. But it's, it could just become traditional, doesn't it? Is it? Are we going to see a rerun of that, do you think? I don't know. The majorities are very slim in both houses. So you have you do have a divided Congress, but with very, very slim majorities. So there may be more of an opportunity to do deals with the oppositions, both for the Republicans in the Senate and for the uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives. The very first vote, by the way, which will happen later today, is to elect a new speaker. And Kevin McCarthy looks like he doesn't quite have the numbers at the moment. 
he needs a majority of those present and voting Republicans have a super thin majority of four seats, I think it boils down to. And at least five House Republicans have publicly said they oppose McCarthy. Now, that might change as they negotiate, but it looks possible that the vote for Speaker will go to a second ballot or potentially multiple ballots until either McCarthy or someone else gets a majority of those present and voting. Now, the last time it took multiple ballots to elect a speaker was 100 years ago. So this is <laughs> this is not something that happens. This is something messy, right? And, and the one thing to stress is that nothing else happens in Congress until a speaker for the House of Representatives has been elected. It's the only leadership position specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Members of Congress cannot even be officially sworn in to start a new session until the Speaker has been elected. So this could get very messy on day one. It it will be very interesting to watch. Are you saying that uh, a a party that's been colonised by its own right wing has proved to be unruly and ungovernable and is holding the party (laughs) to answer and cannot be governed and and, and, uh, is just pushing it to an idea? What would that be like, Alex? Are there any precedents for that that we can think of? (laughs) If only they had looked across um, to see which way this goes. I mean, there will be a lot of battles. The Republican House is already planning votes on issues like abortion and border security that are basically dead on arrival in the Democratic um, Senate, because even the few dissenters on more economic issues in the Senate are fully on board when it comes to things like abortion and border security. And so they will play that sort of useless uh, ping pong. I think the Senate will be concentrating on getting nominees for key administration posts. I think they will be packing committees. I think they will be packing the federal the federal judiciary with progressive judges. And with a slightly improved majority in the Senate, they can actually do that. And that is often the focus of the second half of a president's term. So in that, they won't be hugely disrupted. Chuck Schumer will do some deals, I think, There will be issues with finance bills. So the funding bill for federal government is approved until the end of September. So by October, we could be looking potentially at a sort of government shutdown. And in the spring, they will probably need to raise the the default ceiling, as it were. That's, That's the overall level of debt that the United States can be in, and they will need to raise it in order to be paying back money they already owe on the national debt. And we've seen that happen a couple of times in the last 20 years, where, you know, Republicans demand cuts in Social Security and Medicare and stuff like that, in exchange for approving a higher debt ceiling Meanwhile, this impacts financial markets, even the USA's credit rating. That has happened in the past a couple of times. And so we could be in for a little bit of financial turmoil around the spring.
Back home, 2022 was the year that public opinion quietly turned against Brexit. There are now clear majorities saying that leaving the EU was a mistake, but neither major party will talk about it. The Tories because they're in denial and Labour because they don't want to upset that red wall. Uh, Alex, what are you expecting in 2023? Are we finally going to see a bit of realistic engagement with the Brexit mess? I'm not sure, you know. I think current rejection of Brexit is rooted in economic underperformance. So it is possible that this trend is not monodirectional. And as the economy recovers, the appetite for a change in our relationship may wane. I think as a general trend, there's no there's no doubt that the public as a whole now realise that Brexit was a mistake. I think that is unshakable now. It's a it's a almost three to one majority. Now, whether that will extend to an active wish to rejoin the European Union, like I said, I think that depends on how the economy does. Congratulations to Croatia, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. who joined the euro and the Schengen area on the 1st of January. I read the news with some bitterness, as I'm sure (laughs) many listeners will have. So there is a general trend. This might impact how this issue is treated in the next election, not so much because Labour will suddenly be gagging to make it a central sort of tentpole of their election campaign, but perhaps because the Tories will be a little shyer about pushing hard to make it one. You know, if everyone thinks Brexit is a disaster, I think the Tories will also become quite shy about talking about it. And so so it may we may go into this weird election next time where no one talks about the massive elephant in the room. But but the entire public understands that Labour is slightly more pro-European and the Tories are slightly more anti-European. There is that story in the Times that Sunak is is going to be forced to drop this plan to sunset the four thousand remaining EU derived laws. I mean, this is this is legislation he inherited yeah. from the last government. He's although he makes big play being an enthusiastic Brexiter, he's shown little particular enthusiasm for this. Does that mean anything? Will it simply be allowed to fade away? Well, look, I mean, you know, he's got a fight on his hands on it. Apparently, the Lords are pushing to make the sunset date twenty twenty six. Um, instead of the end of 2023. I mean, that is plainly because anyone who understands anything about legislation does not think it's possible to sunset every regulation by the end of 2023. It will be chaos. It will be mayhem. You will have effectively a regulatory void in all sorts of industries and sectors, which will cause another market shock. Um, And so I think Sunak won't resist that too hard, to be honest. But that doesn't mean he won't get in trouble with the right-leaning, head-banging rump of his party. He will get into trouble um, with them. There's also, uh, by the way, a big delay to Johnson's resignations on us. You know, it's it's now nearly six months since he went, and we still haven't seen the list. And that is because apparently it's being held up by the committee that approves them. And Sunak is being encouraged by many backbenchers to cut it down significantly because they fear it will feed Starmer's call for a reform in the Lords. So there's a couple of interesting legislative things happening in a constitutional sense. And and I go back to the polls that we were talking about earlier. Polls 
are not decisive, but they make the political weather, you know, take emotion out of it. If you were just a business, let's say you were an Estonian business operating in the UK with absolutely no skin in the game politically, you would be preparing for a Labour government right now. Even if the polls are wrong, even if the polls move the other way and they soften, the point is that right now with the data available, everyone in Westminster, everyone in the business community, everyone in the investment community is preparing for a Labour government. And that means that donors also flock to the side that they think will win. And to a certain extent, so do tabloids. You can sort of see them hedging their bets at the moment. If it gets to a point where Labour becomes a shoe-in for next government, you will see quite a lot of movement in donations. You will see Labour coffers filling up. You will see a lot of business leaders publicly endorsing Labour. You will see a couple of tabloids beginning to sound a lot friendlier to Labour because they all want to be mates with the people who will be in government next time. And so I think Kunak has a big, big problem coming up because he's basically relying on something catastrophic happening to Labour's lead while assuming that nothing catastrophic will happen to the Tory party in the meantime. And the history of the last few years is not indicating that that is what will happen. What it shows is that there will be more fights within the Tory party, there will be more insurrections, there will be more backstabbing, more stories being fed to the press, and actually his ratings will slide, which is why I'm not as convinced as many commentators they won't, there won't be an election this year. I think there is a window in late summer of 2023 if economic indicators start nudging up, if inflation has dropped a little bit and growth is coming up a little bit, that for Sunak to say, look, I'm turning it around, but I don't have enough time. And it's important not to rock the boat at this point of economic recovery. That is effectively the only argument he can make against a Labour government who is, whose basic slogan is, it's time for change. The only effective argument against that is to say, not right now. Change could be dangerous right now. And I can't see Sunak making that argument after another winter of strikes and NHS queues and crisis and shortages. So I think there is a possibility of a general election this summer. Obviously, this time last year, if you and I were sitting here, we wouldn't have predicted the Ukraine war. Now it's defining everything. The conflict mm. itself seems kind of locked over the winter. It's moved over to missile and drone strikes rather than ground movements. Now, you and I are not military experts. Arthur Snell on, oh, God, what now? Doomsday Watch is your man for that. But, I mean, is this going to have to be a decisive year? Uh, you know, Can we imagine being here in 12 months' time talking about the same positions and the same stuff? I mean, it's true we're not military experts. But I can comment on the politics of it. And I think the politics of it will definitely push for some kind of maybe uncomfortable armistice, if not 
a complete resolution because I think that the West will want the energy situation to start normalizing and grain to start flowing out of the Ukraine more freely again. And so I think the political pressure will be in that direction. How that impacts the military situation, like I said, I can't comment. I suspect Russian territory will shrink significantly. There will maybe another push in the early spring as the ground thaws. And what we will see is then talks beginning to happen. It's difficult to predict anything in this area. You know, I mean, a week from now, Putin might die. There are all kinds of game changes that could happen. You know, unknown unknowns that we can't we can't possibly glean. But you know, Israel has made a very strange sort of announcement this week that it will start talking to Russia again. I think that's being slightly overinterpreted. I can't see them breaking completely with U.S. policy on this, but it's certainly a movement. At the same time. China and India seem to be moving further away from Russia and their key allies. So we will see what happens. I think it feels to me like the situation will either settle into an unsatisfactory but predictable mire, or it will be resolved resolved by something quite unpredictable and quite, you know, radical, like someone dying or someone using a weapon that that was unexpected. So we will see what happens with that. Finally, just to round up some of the dates for the diary, I suppose, in 2023. Mm. Uh, May, coronation of King Charles. Uh, lots more navel-gazing about the monarchy. The debate about the monarchy that never really happens. Looking forward to a bank holiday. Yeah, it, Ross predicted that, I think, that, that the fallout of that conversation would not happen in the immediate aftermath because grief would transform into support for a sort of grieving son, as it were. But that in the weeks and months that followed, especially with what's going on with Harry and Meghan, you know, that chapter of things, that a a debate would be revived, you know, on the subject of what is the monarchy for and what should it look like in the next century. So, yeah, I think there will be a little bit of discussion on that. Also, we've got Eurovision in Liverpool. We invented pop Yay, music. Hurrah. Looking forward to that. Yeah, Eurovision will be lovely. I think it will be a, a sort of a big hug to Ukraine. At least I hope it is. And Liverpool is a really good city to host it for that, isn't it? The, yes, you know, yes. It's a it, it's a kind of it's a it's a place with loads of heart, um, and and that's what you want from this year's Eurovision. I think. There's also a Turkish general election and presidential election coming up in June. And this is mm. coinciding with elections in Greece as well, is it? Roughly coinciding. Yeah, yeah. Greece in July. Turkey in June, Greece in July. So that could all get quite tasty around April, mm. May, I'm afraid, because both ruling parties are in trouble. Erdogan is consistently behind Dimamoglu now on the presidential stakes. And his party is really sliding in the polls. The public are not happy. That makes Erdogan quite dangerous, by the way. He has a history oh. of sort of fake coups and 
using them as an excuse to clear out loads of newspapers, taking over television stations and things like that. So uh, he won't go quietly. There is there is a danger he might go full Assad, but I think it's it's a sort of ten percent danger um, because I think Turkey feels to me like a more deeply ingrained democracy, a more mature democracy than Syria was. And so I don't think that will fly. I hope that won't fly. But like I said, because both Mitsotakis in Greece and Erdogan in Turkey are in big, big trouble, Mitsotakis over what's been termed the Greek Watergate, you know, where he's bugged several of his opponents and even his own ministers, he's beginning to slide in the polls. Because of the Elena Kaili affair in Brussels, PASOK, which is the center-left party, is also sliding in the polls, which is all good news for Syriza, which is the more mainstream left party. And that means if Syriza come up on top of the election, they might be the ones in the position to form a coalition. Up until now, it's been taken as a given that it would be a, a center-right, center-left coalition between New Democracy and PASOK, it's no longer a given. And because both of those leaders are in trouble, we might see quite a lot of skirmishes in the AGNC. They might create effectively a bit of a fake war um, in the months leading up to the election, because that always favours the right-wing candidate. Oh, good. Well, that's something to look forward to. Uh, Before we go, a, a couple of bits of perspective for your listeners. This year, India is projected to overtake China to become the world's most populous country, which is going to mean a it's bit of a change in the balance. Isn't it? Yeah, bit of a change in the balance of power. And for super super perspective, in April, Voyager Two is predicted to overtake Pioneer Ten as the second furthest spacecraft from Earth. It's going to be over eleven point three billion miles away. But Voyager One, which launched in nineteen seventy seven, is still top dog at approximately fourteen point six billion miles away from Earth, which is where I wish mm. I was now. And Osiris Rex uh, will be returning with a first ever sample collected from an asteroid, which will also be exciting space news. Oh, and of course, the Women's World Cup. And the, the Lionesses have yes, a chance yes. to succeed where the Lions did not. Alex, thank you for joining me to start the year. And we'll reconvene in a year's time and see how very right we both were. It's a pleasure. Happy New Year, everyone. Listeners, thanks for listening and for supporting us throughout 2022. Uh, we hope to keep you informed and entertained throughout the new year. You can, of course, help us in that task by backing us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker to find out about early ad-free editions, amazing merchandise, and, of course, shouts on the show, of which we have some now from Alex. So hello from me and a very happy new year to Luca Spezzoni, Julie Nelson and Duca, Al Neil, Mrs. M and Mindy Goose. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Start Your Year from the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu and Andrew Harrison. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.